0: advice on growing your integrative practice, and grow confidence in being your unique self. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I'm so glad you're here for the journey. Welcome to today's episode of the Holistic Counseling Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I can't wait for you to hear from today's guest. Her name is Dr. Nina Ahuja. She is a surgeon, award-winning medical educator, senior academic leader, certified emotional intelligence facilitator, founder of an organization established to promote and develop leadership education to health professionals, and author of best-selling book, Stress in Medicine, Lessons Learned Through My Years as a Surgeon, From Med School to Residency and Beyond. She is an advocate for emotionally intelligent leadership, mental health and wellness, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ahuja. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work?
1: Certainly. So I, as you mentioned, I'm a surgeon. I started practice in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in 2003. And when I started there, it was a private practice that I had joined. Eventually got into academia, though. In 2005, the university that I'm at started a residency program in ophthalmology, which I became very much involved with in terms of establishing the surgical part of the program. Through the years, I continued my involvement in academic leadership, also got into hospital leadership, and noticed that there were different capacities in leadership capabilities when it came to uh, physician leaders in particular, other leaders in healthcare as well, but in particular physician leaders. And to me, it made sense in the sense that uh, we don't get any formalized education in medical education when it comes to leadership. And so I decided to found an organization called Docs and Leadership where I deliver education oriented towards healthcare leadership for physicians, medical students, residents, nursing, anybody basically who's a healthcare professional interested in taking on leadership roles. That sounds great. Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey that led to eventually writing the book, Stress in Medicine, which came out in December 2020. That was in follow-up to the pandemic and all of the concerns that arose in that area, particularly when it came to stress levels for residents, medical students, those people who are transitioning along in their academic work into the next stages. So whether it be starting a new practice or writing their certification exams, moving through rotations, there were lots of stressors in those periods because everything was disrupted. So, that made me reflect on my different experiences and stress and through the profession myself and led me to write the book.
0: So, have you always been interested in the mental health side and mental wellness?
1: That's something that I've always been very aware of and very attuned to. You know, when you're in medicine, you're meeting people from all backgrounds, all experiences. And my drive to be in medicine was very much wanting to help people. With that, I've always been someone who's noticed how are people around me feeling? What is their energy like? Do they, are they happy? Do they seem sad? I was always interested in learning more about that. So even in medical school, the area of mental health was something I was very drawn to. I ended up in a surgical specialty, but certainly that's something that has stayed with me and I carry through in all my interactions, even with patients.
0: I know you mentioned in your book that you hesitated to share your struggles with colleagues due to the culture of silence. Can you share more what that is and the impact this has on providers?
1: Certainly, medicine like many professions is one that is made up of high achievers. So when you enter every stage of that profession, whether it be medical school applications or residency applications and then looking for jobs, Everyone around you has accomplished a significant amount, uh, at least the same as you, perhaps even more than you. And so it's one of those things where if you're struggling, there's a hesitation to share your struggling. And the reason for that is that in a competitive environment, it's always about judgment. And we're comparing ourselves against other people and how competitive is my application compared to that person's application. And when you're reared in that sort of culture, it's very difficult to be able to take a step back and openly admit to someone that, you know, I'm struggling with this. And I think that's impactful on multiple levels. Personally, of course, it's a strong burden to bear when you're feeling so much stress and you feel like you can't seek support. But that in turn also impacts how we interact with others, be it with our family members, our friends, our patients, where if we're at a heightened state of stress, which has not been managed effectively, that actually translates into how we speak with other people, what our body language is like, how much patience we have, how willing we are to take that extra time to explain or answer a question that a patient may have, for example. So there are lots of impacts on professional level in the examples that I just shared, but also on a personal level. So if your child comes to you and is really struggling or not you know, completely listening to what you want them to do, the level of patience you have does correlate to how much energy reserve you have if you're finding that you're expending it all dealing with stress.
0: I would think, too, that could lead to a big sense of isolation if you're keeping everything inside, almost like pushing those feelings down, but they don't go away when we push them down. Very true.
1: And then that can translate into other manifestations of that pressure and isolation, be it, you know, aches and pains, headaches, joint pains, you know, rashes for no reason, difficulty eating and digesting and multiple ways of manifesting those sorts of feelings.
0: And I know our listeners are mental health therapists, and I think sometimes this culture of silence can even be amongst us. Like we're afraid to admit that we're having a hard time because as mental health professionals, we should have it all together and we shouldn't have our own struggles. But it's so helpful to be able to open that up and be like, look, I'm having a difficult time because we all do. We're human. And I think part of the challenge that we have in our profession is that we deal in the
1: objective. So we have structured tools, frameworks, the knowledge that we all have, approaches to asking patients about how they're feeling, and then having those algorithms and formulas and experiences that we bring to the table at a professional level to be able to help people. But it's hard to recognize that, first of all, we can't apply that to ourselves, I think, effectively. Most times, I think there needs to be that objectivity to For offer sure. guidance. But also, you know, to be able to move ourselves into the subjective, let me just feel what I'm feeling and take the mind out of it becomes a very difficult when we do the type of work that we do every day.
0: And I know you created the admit framework. Can you help listeners understand this approach to stress?
1: sure so the admit framework is something that i feel is a very powerful tool to help organize that jumble of emotion and feeling of overwhelm that we experience when we're in high stress situations admit is an acronym it stands for five phases of experience which are common sources of stress a being adapting to new ways d is doing the work m is measuring success i is introspection and t is transformation so the idea is that when we're feeling overwhelmed to take a step back and to look at what phase of experience am I really struggling with? And then once you've identified that one phase, you can delve deeper into it. So for example, if it's adapting to a new learning style or say you've proposed a new routine to a patient and they're having trouble adjusting or adapting or accepting that idea. The idea is what is it about that that's preventing them from adapting to that new way? What can be used as a motivating trigger for them that allows them to connect to that new idea to then encourage them to want to follow that routine or that recommendation that you've made? Then it moves on to, okay, in terms of the doing phase, are they struggling with actually doing those suggested approaches? So what is it about that? Do they need more support? Do they need something in their physical environment? Do they need an accommodation at work, for example, where they have a 15 minute break to allow opportunity to do that exercise that you've suggested? And so you can move through the framework in that way, then identifying, you know, what is that measure of success? If they get it done X number of times, is that a measure of success? Is it the internal effort that they've put in that they're really connecting with? And that is the measure of success that finally they've now realized that they're willing to accept that new idea. And then the introspection, of course, allows for that time to process. What is that feeling that I'm uh, experiencing? How is that impacting my ability to accept something new? My ability to commit to doing the work What does that measure of success mean to me and how can I make it feel important enough that it then transforms the person into wanting to actually follow through with the routine and then bring about that change that you're trying to bring them to?
0: I saw that you had done some trainings, I think, about the admit framework. So I'm guessing that you've seen some success with this implemented
1: Yes, absolutely. I've seen success with it implemented as individuals as well as in teams. So for example, this can be applied personally and professionally, it can be applied to a personal goal or a team goal. We had a couple of initiatives that I've been working with equity, uh, diversity and inclusion. And also with some of the residents and dealing with some of their issues they have in their programs, I've been able to teach them, particularly the residents, how to work through the framework so that if they're dealing with issues, for example, in optimizing their schedules, balancing work and home, what are those factors that are impeding that ability to create balance intentionally? And so having them work through each step of the framework saying that, okay, these are the issues that we need to address personally. These are the logistics we need to address at the program level. How do we motivate ourselves? How do we motivate others and then drive the change within the system? So it's actually been quite helpful and quite useful.
0: Are you having another training coming
1: up? Right now I'm putting together an online leadership course, which is a seven module program that looks at Essentials of leadership in healthcare. And but it actually the principles are universal when it comes to leadership, but it's just anchored in healthcare because that's the perspective I'm coming from. And within that, the ADMIT framework draws through and is presented within that curriculum as a tool to use for conflict management, change management, and in communications, for example.
0: So, do you think this could be something too that could benefit mental health care providers?
1: I do. I believe it definitely can because the intention is to help, the admit framework helps to uncover the psychological barriers of what we do and what we don't do. So I usually recommend that the admit framework is something, is a tool to use to help increase emotional intelligence, our awareness of our reactions and trying to understand what's behind those responses and then to couple that with JT Doran's SMART goals framework, which is a really good approach to goal setting, as you're I'm sure you're familiar with, that are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. So that if you're able to know what the barriers are from a psychological aspect and what the strengths are from a psychological aspect, that can then translate into setting goals effectively and definitively using the SMART framework. So I I like coupling the two together. I think it works really effectively. And in mental health, for patients, helping them adapt to your recommendations or to carry through with certain commitments and set their own goals, I think that it's a very nice tool to help explore those different areas and to help teach people to explore those moments for themselves as well.
0: I appreciate you sharing that because I think that would be helpful because I do find that uh, I'm a therapist as well. And sometimes we get stuck with clients and trying to figure out how to help them. And I could see how this framework could really be an added bonus and then add it in with a SMART goal as well to really kind of get things going, Mm -hmm. help clients to move from that stuck place to move forward with their goals. Mm Definitely. Definitely.
1: I think it's a nice pairing from a subjective spot yeah, to an objective yeah. plan, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think too, do you this framework could be used for therapists personally? <laughs> And not just 100%. sharing with clients. Because we yes. need that too.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And and in fact, because there's that culture of silence, I think that this yes. at least offers mm-hmm. something to for us to use individually that, you know, hopefully we can change the culture. And part of the reason of the book at being so transparent is to break that culture of silence and and share a lot of the challenges that I went through myself. But You know, until we hit that point where the entire culture has shifted enough that we feel comfortable talking about our concerns and challenges, this at least offers something that we can use as individuals for ourselves and then in turn for other people.
0: I wonder if behind some of the distress that providers feel is, could there be some of that imposter syndrome and comparing to others? And Mm -hmm. because I know you said in medicine too, it's a very competitive field and, oh my God, look what they've done. And I'm not even close to that. And who am I? And do I know what I'm doing? Absolutely. And
1: that's something I talk about in the book as well. Having experienced that myself.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that can be hard to admit too. to actually be open with that. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is, you
1: know, the professions that we're in, we're expected to have all the answers. And it's an expectation that we put on ourselves. And it's an expectation that society puts on us as well, which is good because they need to have faith in our yes. abilities and mm-hmm. in what we can contribute. But at the same time, when you do have that sense of responsibility of knowing that we don't know everything, which is good because that helps us develop, grow, and you know maintain our expertise by learning all the time, it can still be something that is difficult to deal with ourselves. So,
0: so what are your thoughts on comparing to other people in your field? Do you have any ideas of how therapists can manage that?
1: Yes. So I think that the biggest thing that I struggled with, because I I went through that uh, a couple of times in my career where I, I definitely had a sense of imposter syndrome, what really helped me is to draw inward. I found that we are reared in that competitive culture, as I mentioned before, where So much of our success is rooted in how many degrees you have, what your marks were, how many awards you've earned, what grants you've gotten. It's completely rooted in objective, which is good. And there's a place for that because we need to make sure that certain standards are met. However, I think what the piece that I was missing is that I was losing the internal effort that I was putting in, in terms of, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm doing this as sincerely as I possibly can. So that internal Um, dialogue and... Exactly. So it's all about the self-talk and then recognizing that, you know, other people around us may, may be more accomplished than we are or perhaps less, but that everywhere there's a lesson and we can learn from each other in terms of what people have done more or what people have done less, which really translates to doing things differently. Ultimately, if there really is no more or less. It's just our experiences are different. So it's reframing all of those thoughts. Reframe, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, exactly. So it's reframing our perspectives and then reprogramming our self-talk when it comes to those things and recognizing that there's success in everything we do. It depends on how you look at it and how you're going to measure it.
0: For sure, and I think reminding yourself, and I try to do this to myself too, to say, "This is their journey. This is not my journey," and to kind right. of separate that. <laughs> That's right. And
1: we're all here to do our path and to contribute along our own path. And everybody's path looks different when we don't know what everybody's path looks like, but there is, we are on our own paths and our own journeys. So. I I, I
0: recently listened to a a podcast for therapists too, about the comparison. And they did say too, to think about it another way to, to look like, how can I collaborate with other people then if they're more mm -hmm. successful? And I think you mentioned learning, right? It's a learning process. Why not try to learn from them?
1: Yeah. And, and and it's a funny thing you say that because, you know, there have been a few projects where I've been working on recently that are a fair impact and they have been truly collaborative projects. I've led them because of my approach and experience with docs and leadership and in, in driving different initiatives and having different facilitated workshops to help people work through different projects or challenges towards an outcome. However, this was truly collaborative. And I remember there were points where there was opportunity to share the work before it had been published. And I kind of debated that because I felt that competitive spirit come back in me because, you know, early on in my career, when you're applying for different things and doing different things, it's you want to be the first to get that material out there in in a published form. And my mindset has shifted where it's, you know, it's really about let's just get the work done. So if we have to share it now, because they're starting a similar initiative that we can build off of each other's work and really drive that change we're looking for, you know, that seems to be coming my overall goal and objective at this point as compared to being the first one to publish something. So it's an interesting thing when you look at collaboration and if you can get everyone in that spirit of collaboration, you can really get a lot of work done in a really timely manner as well with everyone engaged and connected to the greater purpose. Competition, I think, is valuable where it brings the best out of us. It brings out the skills that we can optimize or that potential that we know we have within ourselves. That can be an inward competition. But I think that when you're dealing with people who are respectful and who are all committed to a greater vision, there's much more value in collaboration than competition. Or at least if you're going to be competitive, it's a productive competitiveness where you're all on the same team working towards getting to that goal as fast as you can. Whether or not other people are doing it doesn't matter, but you know, we ourselves are going to do this the best way that we can in the best time that we can and as comprehensively as we can. I think if that is done in a collaborative spirit within the entire team, that type of competition can be very constructive. But it's hard to move away from that when we're just used to, like you said, comparing to everybody all the time,
0: right? Yes. But that's perfect. What you said, I think to really look at it a different way and that how we can work together in that spirit and not be that internal dialogue, really looking at that and changing that is really, it's Mm going to push you through. Because I think that just is going to cause more negative feelings if you're really getting on yourself. Well, I haven't done this. I haven't done that to reframe that is really what's going to mm-hmm. start the internal work that's going to make a difference. I agree. So what are your thoughts on why emotional intelligence is so important? Emotional intelligence to me is really the foundation of
1: having positive relationships around us, whether they be personal or professional, whether they be individual or on a group level. As you know, emotional intelligence is really about being aware of our emotional responses, how we then in turn respond to them in terms of how we speak to one another, what our behaviors are, what our decisions are, so that the more aware we are of how we react to things in different scenarios, the more effective we can be in managing them in the sense that instead of having a maladaptive response, for example, if we're aware that in this context, I feel really irritable and I tend to snap at people. If I'm aware of that, the next time that scenario comes up, I feel that irritability. I can say, okay, I know this is my tendency. I'm going to choose to do something differently. So I believe that emotional intelligence is a key factor in relationships. And because of that, I think that it's essential for everyone to develop it. That comes into play in our personal lives when we're dealing with our own internal dialogue, as we were talking about before, but also in terms of how we relate to the people around us, whether it be family or colleagues, and even how we relate to strangers. So if we come across someone, I mean, racism is a huge issue right now. Discrimination is is such a major problem. If people understood, well, why is it that if I see someone who looks differently than me, I react the way that I do? There may be some work that can be done in terms of saying, oh, that's an emotional response. I can't find the reason behind it, or maybe I can. And how can I reframe that so that I don't respond in that same way? Again, there is so much potential for impact through uh, developing emotional intelligence throughout society that I, I think it's really something that uh, needs to be a driven home for everyone. So it impacts everything,
0: doesn't it? Mm-hmm. personal and professional, because I know you mentioned how important it is for leadership. So why would it be really important for leadership?
1: For leadership, it's really important because you're working with other people who have multiple responsibilities of their own. And if we don't have the ability as leaders to have empathy for that, it's very hard to keep people connected and motivated towards the mission of what you're doing professionally as a collective. So for example, if I've got someone on my team who's got four kids at home, their spouse is sick, or say they're a single parent, and they're trying to juggle all of their responsibilities at home with all of their responsibilities at work, and they aren't able to perform the way they want to for the team, if I don't take that time to speak to that person and try to understand where they're coming from... I don't have the opportunity to offer support or to modify expectations and delegate tasks in different ways so that it brings the best out of that person still. The reason that links to emotional intelligence is I need to have that awareness within myself that, okay, I'm feeling irritable. This person didn't get the work done. Rather than stick with that and emote whatever I do in response to that, if I can stop myself and say, there may be another reason, let me speak to this person see what's happening. And then I can choose to be empathetic or compassionate, or, you know, if I need to be a little bit more directive about things, then I can choose that too. But at least there's an awareness there of what's happening on the table at an emotional level. And then that can be linked back to practicality and dealt accordingly. So that's where I think for leadership to really bring everyone together in a way that works for them from the perspective they bring to the team, emotional intelligence becomes really critical.
0: I could see that too because I, I talk to clients about that, um, not jumping to conclusions. Could there be another reason that you didn't hear from your friend on the text? Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with yeah, people. I know. Yeah. Jumping <laughs> to conclusions about, I didn't hear from them. They must be mad at me. They hate me. Yeah. Internal dialogue. But I could see that from a leadership role too that if somebody's not doing their work, having that empathy could be so important and keeping the team together and really understanding, well, let's stop a second. Let's look at this. And could there be something else going on? And you know, maybe they're having health issues or something else at home and really understanding that it's not necessarily that they don't want to do the work or they're just unmotivated, that there's something else could be going on. Keeping that in mind, I guess that that makes a lot of sense. Being tuned in, isn't it, to the emotional intelligence? Mm -hmm. So what's a holistic strategy or technique that you like to use as part of a daily practice? For me, I always like to take part of the
1: day, this sounds kind of funny, but to listen to the silence around me. I find that My mind often gets so busy because I'm often working on multiple things at a time, as most of us or many of us do. Yes. Uh, I find that the busyness is difficult to step away from, just the mental busyness. And so if I intentionally try to listen to the sounds around me, it actually centers me so that if you stop for a moment, you'll hear the traffic and you'll hear the buzz of the computer and you'll hear everything else. But below all of that, there's just a quiet and If I focus on that, close my eyes and focus on that for a few minutes, it just brings this sense of calm for me that I can do anywhere at any time and nobody needs to know. I can do it with my eyes open as well. So, if I really didn't want people to know, (laughs) but it's something you can really do anywhere. And I find that, like I said, it centers me, it brings me a sense of calm. Then I, I do some deep breathing along with that and then I get back into it. But you can do that as many times a day as you need to, really. But intentionally, I do try to do it. My routine is usually before bedtime, but through the day, I'll often do it as well if I'm just feeling like I need a break.
0: Sounds like, yeah, that could be a very centering activity, grounding experience to really just tune in that mindfulness component. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. So is there
1: anything else I missed that you want to share? No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you so much for that. And I just hope that over time you know, we've gone through such a stressful period with this pandemic that the lessons that we've learned through it, I hope that people feel willing to be open and share and be vulnerable and help one another through because we've been through the heat of the pandemic, but there's lots of residual stuff going on. And I think stress is going to be high for many people for a very long time still. So I just hope that people feel encouraged to be open, be vulnerable and help support one another through.
0: Yes, definitely. Because I think I I had heard too that they don't even know the long-term mental health impacts of the pandemic. No, they
1: don't. And I mean, the range is so wide, as you know, of of what the impact has had on people's personal lives, people's careers, professional circumstances, working styles. There's been so much change and so much need for adaptation at such a quick pace across so many domains of life that I could see this, there are going to be impacts for a while. So, we're going to
0: be a (laughs) great. Yes, I was going to say, we need to support each other and really be in that vulnerable place to help each other out and to take care of yourself. And and that's part of this podcast, too, is not just the holistic counseling piece, but also that self care, because we Mm -hmm. have to be in a good place, too, in order to fully support and help our clients. Absolutely. What's the best way for listeners to find you and learn more about you? I am on social media. My Instagram and
1: Twitter handle is at docs leadership d-o-c-s-l-e-a-d-e-r-s-h-i-p i I do have a website as well which is
0: www.docsinleadership.org and that will be in the show notes as well on the web page but i want to thank you so much for coming onto the holistic counseling podcast thank you so much chris for having me i appreciate it nina and i want to thank you my listeners for continuing to support the show don't forget to subscribe rate and review wherever you get your podcasts And this is Chris McDonald sending each one of you much light and love. Until next time, take care. If you're loving the show, will you rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? We just started this and that helps other people find this show. Also, if you're feeling uncertain about your modalities and you want to build your confidence to be your unique self, I want you to join my free email course, Becoming a Holistic Counselor, over at holisticcounselingpodcast.com. In my Becoming a Holistic Counselor course, you'll get tips for adding integrative care into your practice, what training you need and don't, and the know-how to attract your ideal holistic clients. If this sounds like the direction you are headed, sign up at holisticcounselingpodcast.com. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.